Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You can be seated. Children often have a way of showing adults what we don't want to see about ourselves or what we don't see about ourselves. After our vacation this summer, I'm talking to a family, obviously, adults talking together late into the night. One of our daughters said, you know, Dad, I'm not sure I want to be an adult. (laughs) And uh, I said, why is that? And I thought she was going to talk about how busy we are with the kids and how much we sacrifice and all the things we have to do for the kids. She said, well... Because the only thing adults talk about is boring. It's money and food. (laughs) Ouch. We do talk a lot about those things, don't we? Uh, Let's set aside the topic of food this morning. I wonder if you had any conversations about money this week. I wonder if you were anxious at all about money wonder how much of your hope is connected to money. If only I had a little bit more. If only my stocks did a little bit more. If only I got another raise. How often did you check your bank account or your retirement funds this week? It is a central issue in our life, and Jesus talked about it quite a bit. Because he saw a link between our spiritual life and our money. And he told several parables that addressed the issue of how his followers ought to handle money. And one of those parables is in our gospel reading today. Jesus touches on this throughout his teachings because, once again, there is this connection between our heart and our possessions. In fact, after this story, after he said these things, it says that the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard what Jesus said, and what was their response? They ridiculed him. And so it's an indicator how we respond to the teachings of Jesus in this area, what's going on in our hearts, because then Jesus said to these Pharisees, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. So in this parable... Jesus teaches us about how we ought to use money and how we ought to view money, how we ought to use it and how we should view it. And the lesson about how we ought to use it comes in verse 9. This is the key point of Jesus' story about the dishonest manager. He says, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, the key principle here is something that Jesus taught throughout the Gospels about money, and that is that his disciples ought to have an eternal perspective on money. Use your money for God's eternal kingdom and for the good of people. What is eternal? Or better, who is eternal? God and people. So use your money with eternity in mind. And when he says unrighteous wealth, that doesn't mean he wants us to be unrighteous with our wealth. It just means that so often our wealth leads to unrighteous ends. 
as he'll warn later on, you can't serve both God and money. Money can lead us away from God. But Jesus is teaching us here to use our money for eternal purposes. In fact, he says that when you use your money like this, the very people you helped may be in eternity to greet you. They may receive you in the eternal dwellings. It's an amazing thought. It's an inspiring thought. It's a thought that's inspired generations of Christians to be generous with their money. Jesus is saying that in eternity you might meet the family who received food and shelter because you gave to the disaster relief effort. Or you might meet that little girl who was born in desperate poverty, who had no way out except for getting an education, and because of your sponsorship, she received that education. Or perhaps you'll meet hundreds or thousands of people who came to Christ because of the missionary that you supported. Jesus is saying that one day folks like that will be in eternity to meet people, Christians, who have given with eternity in mind. So use your resources with eternity in your mind. Now, Jesus gives this principle. That's how we ought to use our resources after the parable of the dishonest manager. And this is a bit of a head scratcher. I've already had one person come up to me today and say, I'm not sure what to do with this parable. The the manager is dishonest, and so why is the landowner... Why is his boss commending him? Yeah. And why is Jesus making a positive example out of this guy? Is Jesus okay with shady business practices? Well, let's look into the details a little bit more deeply. The first is, yeah, it's true. This manager was dishonest. And the dishonesty comes at the beginning The dishonesty uh, is indicated when it says that uh, this manager was wasting the landowner's possessions. So he was misappropriating the funds in some way. Maybe he was pocketing himself. And so the boss finds out about this and he says, okay, turn in your keys, pack up your stuff, you're fired, you're done. Let me see the the books uh, on your way out. So the manager was dishonest and he gets fired because of it. But the manager is also shrewd. He's about to be fired, and so he he thinks, you know what, I can't do manual labor. I'm not going to dig ditches. Maybe he's physically not able to do that. And I'm too proud to beg. This is an honor-shame culture. Too proud to beg. Not going to do that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to call in everyone who, or a couple of people, who owe my boss some money, and I'm going to reduce their debt. This was a very heavy discount that he gave to the guy who owed the wheat and the oil. In fact, somebody calculated that in each case, the amount of debt wiped away was equivalent to 16 months' worth of wages. Significant discount. Now, here's the point. What the manager does here in discounting the debt was not dishonest. As a manager in those days, as a steward, he was within his right to negotiate contracts on behalf of this wealthy landowner. And he did this so that wealthy people would remember his generosity once he came knocking on their door to look for a job. Some people say what he's discounting here 
is his own commission that he would have received in the business deal. Some people say what he's discounting here is the interest that was sort of baked into this money. And so the owner maybe didn't lose a whole lot of money. And maybe even the owner gained a reputation in the community for being generous. Well, it's clear that the manager is doing this out of self-interest. But the manager, or the landowner rather, commends him for his shrewdness. Not for his dishonesty. (laughs) He's not commending him for his dishonesty, but he's commending him. He's saying, okay, that was ingenious. That was creative. You used your money. You used this money to secure your future. And that's the point that Jesus is making about this story. Maybe this is something that happened in the village and everybody kind of knows about it. It's been the talk of the village. Jesus points to this story and he says to the disciples, now you need to use that same kind of energy and ingenuity and creativity and drive in terms of how you use your money, but not to secure your own position in this world, but for spiritual and eternal purposes. Does that make sense? That's the, that's the point of this story. Use that same level of creativity and drive and ingenuity that people use money for to gain security in this world to invest in spiritual things and eternal purposes. Now, there's a covenant seminary professor, Jerem Bars, who uh, has written about this, and he provides a helpful application. He says this is a question that Christians ought to periodically ask ourselves. Will there be people in heaven that I'm going to greet who will give praise to God and thank me for the way that I used money? Will there be people in heaven who will give praise to God and thank me for the way that I used my money? Now, there there are going to be people who listen to something like this and say, well, you know, after I pay my bills and after I pay for necessary expenses, I'm on a fixed income or I don't have a whole lot of money. There's not much left over for generosity or charity. And I think we can broaden this application to include whatever God has given us for the good of others, to use that for the good of others. Our time, our talents, whatever resources that we have. I love the story of a woman named Sarah. She was... um, a small business owner. This is a true story. She lived in a small town. She ran a hairdressing business, and she didn't have a whole lot of money, but what she could do and what she loved to do was to bake bread for people. And so she was known in the community as the bread lady who baked bread for churches when they were trying to raise money. She baked bread for families that were going through difficult circumstances, neighbors, She baked bread for her own family and grandchildren, for soup kitchens that were helping the homeless. And her philosophy was simple. I don't have a whole lot of money. I don't have a lot to give. But God wants us to give what we do have. And what I do have is bread. (laughs) And I'm going to bake it for his glory and for the good of others. So use what you have for the good of others, for their eternal good. That's the principle there. Invest in eternal things. So that's how to use money. And then Jesus, in this passage, teaches us how to view our money. And there's several things that we can say here, but I want to just draw out a couple of points, two or three points. First of all, he tells us that money will fail. 
Jesus says, make friends by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, not if it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. How will money, how will wealth fail us? Well, if we're looking for it to provide security, ultimate security, it's going to fail. If we think it's never going to run out, it's going to fail. And oftentimes when I hear advertisements, and maybe you've noticed this too, for investments or stocks or bonds, there's often a message that's, that's included that has to do with securing your future or giving you peace of mind. And of course, there's some truth in that in this world. But we can't get ultimate security and ultimate peace through our money, through our possessions. And we know this. But it's important for us to hear Jesus say it again because we're bombarded with messages throughout the week that tell us otherwise or want us to believe that we can find security and peace through material possessions. In 2011, when Steve Jobs died, the founder of Apple or co-founder, the inventor of the device that we have in our pockets, he was, he was worth... Six and a half to seven billion dollars. He could have been worth a whole lot more, but he'd sold some of his stock. Six and a half to seven billion dollars. He had ultimate financial security, but it couldn't shield him from death. Only Christ, the risen Christ, can give us hope in the face of death. When J.D. Rockefeller died, who was, of course, one of the wealthiest men of his day, someone asked his lawyer, how much did J.D. leave? And the response was classic. He left everything. (laughs) 1 Timothy 6, 7, the Apostle Paul says, we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out. So money fails in the sense that it cannot provide us ultimate security or peace. And when we remember that, it helps loosen our grip on money. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't save. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't plan well. That doesn't mean that we have to renounce all of our material possessions. I mean, where would the world be if generous Christians just gave everything they had and held on to nothing and there was no wealth building? Zacchaeus is an example of somebody that Jesus called as his disciple. Oftentimes in the Gospels, you will see Jesus say, you must leave everything to follow me. But here was an instance where Zacchaeus was a very wealthy man, a tax collector, a rich tax collector, Luke says. And he gave back all that he had defrauded. That was part of his repentance. And he gave half, but not everything away, to the poor. And Jesus said to Zacchaeus when he did this, today salvation has come to your house. And so it's not about, I don't think, complete renunciation. There are two extremes to avoid when it comes to thinking about money, John Stott says in one of his books. One extreme is asceticism, which means I'm going to renounce material things, and it's this idea that material things are inherently bad. And so I'm just going to renounce all of it. And sometimes the Lord does call people to that, but that's an extreme. The other extreme is materialism, which is what our culture oftentimes preaches to us. The problem with asceticism is that it can reject the idea that creation itself is good, and it can reject good gifts from the creator. 
The problem with materialism is that we don't just possess material things, but that we can become possessed by them. We can become preoccupied by them, and they can become an idol in our life. And John Stott says that between asceticism and materialism is simplicity, contentment, and generosity. I would like more of that in my life. Simplicity, contentment, and generosity. Those are the three virtues that should mark a Christian. So it's not so much a a question of absolute rules or regulations, but these principles of cultivating a life of simplicity, contentment, and generosity over coveting materialism and asceticism. I think that's helpful from John Stott. When we believe that money will ultimately fail, it's easier for us to live with simplicity, contentment, and generosity. The second thing that Jesus teaches us here, second way to view money, is to remember that we are not the owners. We are stewards. We are managers of what God owns. Just like the manager in this parable was a steward of the rich landowner's estate. A steward is called to be faithful with the owner's possessions. Jesus is teaching in this passage that disciples are to be faithful stewards of money. And he says that disciples are to be faithful in that which is another's, or the NIV says, someone else's property. You're to be faithful with someone else's property. Well, who is the someone else? It's God, and the property is money. Ultimately, our money comes from God. And that is difficult sometimes for us to believe or once again to admit or remember that ultimately what we have is from the hand of God. Because we're taught from the time we're very little in American culture that you need to work hard and develop your skill and your drive and earn what you can, make your own way in this world. And of course there is some truth to that, isn't there? I mean, the Bible itself talks about this connection between hard work and material blessing. And the Proverbs are especially keen on that, to make that point. That there is a connection between hard work and material prosperity. No doubt about it. But ultimately, do we recognize that all the good things that we have are from the hand of God? We had nothing to do with when we were born or where we were born. Sometimes I think, to myself, what would have happened if I was born in like the third or fourth century in northern Europe somewhere? What if I was born to some Germanic barbarian tribe? I probably would not have made it to past 20. And if I had, I probably would have been a blind beggar because without these things, I can't do much. Glasses weren't invented until, what, the 13th century or so. So I had nothing to do with where I was born or when I was born. The scripture says that God is the one who determines the time and the location of our birth. That's Acts 17. And so the very, our very existence in this time and in this place where there is so much material prosperity is a gift from God. All that we have that enables us to learn, earn a living is a gift from God. Our health and our talent, the very breath that we take is from God. So ultimately, it's from his hands. And I've heard this from many of you. I've heard this from older Christians who did well in life, did well in their career, and oftentimes I'll hear 
Older Christians say things like this, I've been blessed throughout my life. God has been good to me. God has been gracious to me. Even this week I heard somebody say that in this congregation. I don't know why God has been so gracious to me as I look back on life, but he has been gracious to me. And people who get that, people who remember that, are given to more generosity. They've learned the lesson that God ultimately is the owner. And so it motivates us to give back to God. Money will fail. God is the owner. We are stewards. And then finally, Jesus teaches us to see money as a rival to God, to watch out for this, that money can become our masters. And he says, you can't have it both ways. You can't serve both God and money, God and mammon. This is something he said in the Sermon on the Mount as well. Something we'll have to give. He's not saying you can't have both God and money. You can't have God and money as your master. You can't have two masters at one time. It won't work. And, you know, we've seen this as we... We've seen this in in the lives of other people and and in our own hearts. Many of us have had to wrestle with these temptations to put our identity in money or status or material possessions rather than in God. And oftentimes there's sort of a fork in the road in our life and we have to choose. We have to choose. And we've all seen people who or heard about people who have crossed that line, who've taken the wrong fork in the road. They've made compromises. They've done what they knew was wrong in order to get more money or put themselves in a position to gain more or to have more status. The workaholic who starts to neglect family and their relationship with God in pursuit of money. And Jesus is saying, you can't have it both ways. Something's got to give. You can't serve both God and money. And so those are the things that Jesus, the principles that Jesus teaches, not only here, but throughout the gospel. For the Christian, this life of stewardship and generosity is not simply about doing the right thing. Although it's that, it's not simply feeling good about what we do, although there's part of that as well. Doesn't it feel good to give? More blessed to give than to receive. But it's not about feeling good about ourselves or doing the right thing. It's not ultimately about those things. And it's certainly not about trying to earn God's salvation, which is a gift of grace. It's about reflecting the heart of God who has saved us, who's been gracious to us. And we're reminded in our epistle reading that Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all, Paul says. What is a ransom? A ransom is a payment. A ransom is a payment that is paid to set someone free. And Jesus was our ransom payment. He paid the penalty that our sins deserved. The price, the cost, was his very life. His precious blood spilt out on the cross to set us free from that penalty of sin and death. And when we are generous, we reflect the heart of God. When we give, we bear witness to God who has given to us like this, who did not spare even his own son for our salvation. Amen.
let's stand and, and pray about how we might apply the teachings of Jesus to our life this morning. And this matter of money and material blessings. Maybe there is somebody here today who, it's been a long time that you've acknowledged to the Lord that every blessing that you have is ultimately from his hand. We sing the doxology, praise God, from whom all blessings flow. But sometimes we, we can say the words, but it doesn't sink into our heart and mind. Maybe today an appropriate response for some of us is to acknowledge to the Lord all the good gifts that he has given to us. And that we are not owners. Maybe there's a, there's a call to generosity, to loosen our grip on our material possessions and to help those who are less fortunate to invest in eternal things. Maybe some of us need to repent because money and the status that it brings is becoming or has been an idol in our life and there's a divided loyalty. And the Lord is convicting us about that or warning us of that. And he wants us to heed that warning. Lord, I don't know I don't know what's going on in the hearts of everyone here. You do. Search our hearts. Speak to us. Challenge us. Encourage us to live our life in a way that honors you and that reflects your grace that you have shown us in Jesus Christ. I pray this in your name. And everyone said, Amen. 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 Would you